Hello and welcome to the IEMA podcast. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. I'm Chief Executive of IEMA and it's my pleasure and delight to introduce you to this podcast. IEMA is a membership organisation with more than 17,000 members around the world. We support our training and development of our members and also work in policy areas that our members wish to see. This summer, extreme weather events fueled by climate change have destroyed lives, homes and livelihoods around the world. Heat waves in Canada, flash floods in Europe, droughts and fires along the west coast of the US and in Iran. Japan and southern Europe are logging extreme temperatures, in some cases the hottest on record, and wildfires are raging across Turkey, Greece, Lebanon and Algeria. It's impossible to erase from memory the distressing pictures of anguished residents trying desperately to beat back the conflagration and to protect their homes, or to forget the tourists on ferries with the sky a hellish red behind them. The IPCC report published in early August was declared a code red for humanity by the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, with scientists predicting that some changes may already be irreversible. So, as we read these headlines and stories, we're asking this month, how do we build to combat this? And what can we do to develop cities that are resilient to flooding, heat and sea level rises? In a moment, I'll be talking to two experts in building better for climate change adaptation and mitigation. But first, here's André Farah with his roundup of this month's news stories. Publication of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's latest report on the implications of the climate emergency is a warning to the world and will cast a long shadow to the Glasgow Climate Conference and beyond. Yet, as this is the IPCC's sixth assessment report, it's hardly a surprise. This is a story written in many instalments. And the reaction has changed. First denial, then rebuttal, now a realisation that this may be the last assessment before the impacts of climate chaos start to overwhelm our ability to respond. If the IPCC's seventh assessment isn't to be, in part, an epitaph for a burning world, then action is needed now. This is the context that COP26 in Glasgow will face in a few short weeks and that it cannot avoid. The IPCC's assessment that we will not be able to limit global warming to even two degrees unless there are immediate, rapid and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions could not be clearer. The outcome in Glasgow will determine if we are to have a good COP or a bad COP, will the sense of urgency that is now palpable translate into the commitments and action our planet needs to transform to a post-carbon future? Here at IEMA, we're certain that COP26 must provide strong and clear leadership and will be looking for commitments on climate finances and to broaden the range of voices heard. There needs to be support and certainty for investment and transition, such as agreement on international carbon markets. Climate action and energy reduction must rapidly become embedded into mainstream business. COP26 should be a platform for transparency and clarity as countries' commitments are presented convincingly and without ambiguity. Of course, the IPCC report comes in a year when there is a continuing litany of climate impacts seen across the planet, as floods, fires and broken weather records continue to dominate the news agenda. 
In the USA, a dire water shortage has been declared as Lake Mead, the US's largest reservoir, hits record levels, triggering cuts to the water supply in Arizona and other western states. The future will be drier and even more challenging, inevitably requiring changes to historic patterns of water use in in the Colorado catchment. The evidence is clear. Action this day. In the UK, the government has finally published its strategy for a UK-wide hydrogen economy, which will be the subject of an industry-wide consultation later this year. The issue is dogged by uncertainty on the levels of subsidy and mired in controversy about the role of hydrogen derived from fossil fuels as an alternative to hydrogen produced from the electrolysis of water, leaving only oxygen as a byproduct. Clarity and leadership will be needed to ensure hydrogen can play a role in our post-carbon future. So this month, as I said, we have two experts in the field of building better for climate change adaptation and mitigation. Jan Rasmussen is head of project for the Copenhagen Climate Change Adaptation Plan for the city of Copenhagen. And Kit England, who is a member of IEMA and a chartered environmentalist, he's the Green Economy Manager at Glasgow City Council. Jan, I wonder if I could ask you first, um, the IPCC report, did it come as a surprise to you and how does it affect your daily working life? Yes, thank you. Uh, no, I don't think it was a surprise. I think the, the new report from IPCC just underlined what they have said for years. And um, for Copenhagen, it means that we continue our work with both adaptation and mitigation. Adaptation, we have worked with that since 2007. And I don't think this new report make any change to what we are doing in Copenhagen because we have been working with this intensely since uh, 2007. And uh, Kit, I guess the same question to you as well. Was it a surprise? And how, if at all, has it altered the way that you're working at the moment? I suppose in a lot of ways, the sort of, it's similar to Jan, you know, the messages in the IPCC report, and because it's a synthesis report of, you know, the existing science, it tends to be the sort of the common denominator of all of the sort of studies out there. And so I suppose I wasn't surprised by the conclusions. What I suppose I was surprised by and what's different is about the strength of the message and the clarity of the message that the IPCC has delivered to governments around the world and to policymakers. And I think that's incredibly helpful because it starts to cut through a lot of the noise. Um, I mean, science communication is is a difficult thing, you know, and we're onto the sixth assessment report now. You know, we've had five of these already and they haven't really hit home in the way that we we have. But I, I have to sort of say this feels like it's landing differently. So that's that. And, you know, particularly with people that I speak to here up in, in Scotland as well. And of course, we'll come to this in a minute. I mean, Glasgow is going to be the epicentre of of climate change discussions in a couple of months' time. But just to talk a little bit more about that idea of, of resilient cities, um, Jan, I mean, Copenhagen is internationally renowned for its work on climate resilient cities. I wonder if I could ask you first uh, how that came about. What was it in Copenhagen that meant that citizens and politicians, everyone, understood the reasons for climate change adaptation yeah uh, actually we in in 2010 and 11 were about to, to launch uh, the Copenhagen climate adaptation plan uh, 
just as we were about to uh, present this for the city council in 2011, Copenhagen was hit by a month of rain. Uh, where we have damaged around the city for around 1 billion euros in, in two hours. That was really an eye-opener for both politicians and citizens that this is something to worry about and to do something about. And since then, we have uh, been implementing this plan to make the city more resilient to uh, to heavy downpours. And is it just water resilience that you're looking at, or has this now extended to the other possible effects of climate change? No, we we in in the adaptation plan we have analysed uh, all kind of uh, threat for climate change. Uh, what about sea level rise? Uh, warming of the city, the heat island effect, how is this today and how will this change in the future? What is the time frame for doing something? And from that analysis, we have made a full plan for what to do the coming years, what to do right now and what to do in the coming years. And we saw that the biggest challenge was, as we saw in 2011, is the more frequently cloudbursts that will hit Copenhagen. So that is... Number one to implement, and number two is the, the rising sea level and the risk for storm surge hitting uh, Copenhagen. So this is number two we are working seriously on uh, right now, how to do this and how to incorporate this in the development of the city. So it's not just a solution that is built when we have a incident, but make it a part of the development of the city. That's quite important also to make it cheaper. Yeah, and that question about cost, I think, is is one that we'll return to in a minute. Um, uh, Kit, we were talking a little bit earlier before we started the recording that that you've worked with colleagues of of Jan's uh, from Copenhagen because it is seen as a role model, if you like, for other cities. Um, And what do you think makes uh, a resilient city? What are the key aspects of a resilient city for the UK? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, at the heart of it, it's addressing, I suppose, the, the drivers of what those climate change risks are. So when we talk about, I suppose, the risks from climate change, there are sort of the IPCC talks about sort of three different components. So you have your hazards, you have how exposed you are to those hazards and how vulnerable you are. And so, you know, the characteristics for cities, they've got to think quite carefully about, well, you know, what hazards are we exposed to? And uh, and Jan kind of covered that for, for Copenhagen. For Glasgow, it's things like surface water flooding, which is the kind of the biggest hazard that we face. But actually also, you know, in, in future over time, that becomes heat waves um, and it also becomes coastal erosion and sea level rise. Um, but then the other sort of dimension to that is the vulnerability act aspect so actually how are the different systems that operate in cities how you know how are they i suppose vulnerable in terms of their kind of i suppose ability to prepare respond and and recover you know their adaptive capacity as part of that and kind of what characteristics socioeconomic characteristics you know make them more or less vulnerable so just to kind of give you an example if you take a, a standard sort of neighborhood in glasgow or in any city you know um where it is you know whether it's coastal or not whether it's very dense in urban form you know affects how exposed it is to sea level rise or you know um heat waves but then actually the fabric of that building also plays a role in terms of um you know how likely it is to overheat how and then the kind of the people that live there you know their demographic backgrounds their health their ethnicity their you know social status all go into that overall sort of assessment of 
I suppose, how the challenge is. And then, you know, what cities have to do is design those kind of responses in a way that reduce those different factors. So it could be about reducing exposure, it could be reducing vulnerability. But then just very quickly, the last part I would say is, you know, there's also a broader socioeconomic drivers in cities. So actually things that sit outside, particularly climate change, but our broader economic models, which drive that exposure and vulnerability in the first place. And we've really got to start getting into those issues um, in the longer term as well. Yes, yeah, so almost I wouldn't start from here in a way that we need to radically think about how we conceptualise even what a city looks like and what urban planning looks like, perhaps. Yeah, I think, but also prosperity, right? You know, we've had an economic model that has produced the kind of the carbon emissions and the climate vulnerabilities of places, you know, over the last sort of 100 and 150 years. And, you know, we have to systemically get in and redesign those as well as adapting to the climate change that's already with us, because otherwise we're just making that problem worse, right? Um, Jan, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, that the current measures of economic success are in some cases, built around burning carbon. And to change that perception, to say, well, what do we think of as a prosperous city, potentially is quite a radical change. Um, Do you think in the work that you've done, you've managed to bring citizens along with you on that journey? Because sometimes it is seen as an an either or, isn't it? Either you're prosperous or you're resilient. Yeah, I think uh, uh, in Copenhagen, citizens are very aware of the climate change and what it could bring to them. I think the event in 2011, every citizen in Copenhagen, they could feel it on their own body what, uh, what could happen to them if uh, by doing nothing. A lot of property was destroyed. Uh, all people uh, know what will mean when you can't get around in the streets and your basements, what you have in the basement are destroyed. So they know exactly what it means and what also what the possibilities of climate adaptation is in, in Copenhagen. Because when we started working with this, we also saw this is a big challenge, but it also offers a lot of opportunities to make the city resilient and at the same time to make the city more green and so have a benefit of this uh, challenge. And that's really what uh, this also is about, to make this good planning and having an outcome of the big investment we are about to do in Copenhagen to make this city more resilient. And do you think that is it is an either-or? Can you have a prosperous city that is also resilient and can also look beautiful and be, be something that, you know, a place that could even attract tourism. Yeah. And when we started the implementation of uh, the adaptation plan, we made uh, this demonstration site called St. Kitts Quarter. And what was about to show what does we mean when we transform it into uh, some opportunities for making the city more green and attractive. And, of course, citizens and politicians ask, what do we mean about saying this, making the city more green? And it's a matter of... Uh, making the city more green and make maybe try to make the adaptation for handling downpours invisible for the citizens. So it's just a part of the city. It's a transformation of the city where you can you can hide the, the reservoirs, the, the surface reservoirs for handling the rainwater in the green solutions. So the, you, in the daily, you only see the the green solutions and, and the benefit you get out of the implementation of our cloud-based plan. And um, Kit, as Jan was talking there, thinking about Glasgow, which was you know, built on a 
of Victorian or Industrial Revolution prosperity. I mean, those grand buildings that that shout to everybody, we are a major city, we have a major economy. The point that you were making about, yes, but you know, a lot of the economic growth that we have at the moment is fueled by carbon, and we have to think about that very differently. What is your role in that translation of that message to, to people who might be still quite sceptical about what you're going to do to their city? I think that's a, a, a good question, Sarah. I mean, I think Jan highlighted a lot of things, you know, that actually where there are win-wins, right? We're doing the right thing in terms of building resilience also kind of builds wider prosperity and, and health and well-being. And it's interesting you sort of mentioned the Victorian sort of infrastructure that we're built on. We all know that this has to be the decisive decade. I think to bring citizens with us, we need to demonstrate what the future could look like, right? I think, you know, we have lots of good evidence and estimates out there of how, I suppose, prosperous we could be through that transition. So for example, CITB, the Construction Industry Technology Board, tell us that, you know, the transition to net zero in Scotland, for example, could create 22,000 or 23,000 jobs. So I think there's an obligation on us to to start to show what that could look like um, and to face up to what we really have to do. And, you know, it's interesting. Cities have done this in the past. You know, globally, they've gone through um, the sort of similar transitions. People forget that local authorities were the first to build the electricity networks in the first place. And, you know, and local authorities in the UK built the drainage networks to deal with cholera. So cities have got a track record of responding really well to those big transformational challenges. And I think that the sort of issue we have to overcome is bringing citizens with us, but also finding, I suppose, the leadership within our organisations and within ourselves to face up to that and kind of provide that similar level of leadership needed for the climate, you know, for the climate decade as well. Yeah. And um, I mean, I suppose this is a good point to think about um, building back better is on many people's minds uh, after the pandemic. I mean, certainly there are a lot of governments around the world who are looking at construction um, as one of the ways of restarting the economy and providing vital jobs. But of course, you know, that is in many cases very carbon intensive. So in, can we do that? Can we build more resilient cities without building ever more onto the, you know, already very negative balance sheet of our carbon emissions kit? Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting question. I think it's possible, but it requires some really careful and systematic consideration of the synergies and the trade-offs, right? So wh where we've got to now and what the IPCC report tells us and what we're seeing now is that we can't do mitigation or adaptation. We have to do both together and we have to do them both very, very quickly. You know, mitigation for not making the problem worse and for adaptation for coping for what's already coming. And I think there are synergies and trade-offs. So for example, you know, development in cities, you know, if you can do it in a compact way, it reduces transport emissions, but that also might involve developing on floodplains. So you've really got to think about where those synergies and those trade-offs are and what is the, the right pathway, if you like, for cities, you know, to go through that. And that involves thinking that through, you know, at multiple different geographies. So, you know, at the city scale, but also at the system scale. So in the built environment, for example, in Glasgow, we're doing a piece of work at the moment to look at the potential to increase the amount of local wood in construction. So, you know, that would be a significant carbon storage increase for us. It would potentially create new markets and supply chains. And it would also potentially create resilience, right, in terms of managing surface water, managing um, overheating, and some of the disruption that we've been seeing 
seeing kind of globally in the timber industry as a result of forest fires and and kind of you know covid pressures and construction and things like that so i think it's totally possible but it requires us to think quite a bit differently about the planning process for mitigation and for adaptation yeah kid i fully agree about you we both have to work with adaptation and mitigation now and about the, the carbon dioxide outlet when we are building resilient cities in coming we made an analyze of what is the alternative to make those surface solution we are working with in coping we are also building big tunnels of course but mainly we try to, to solve the problem at the surface because then we can avoid expanding the sewer system and that will be much more carbon dioxide intensive and requires a lot more concrete uh, than the green solutions. And in the case of doing nothing, this will result in a, a large damage in the city more and more frequently. And that requires a lot of more re- reconstruction work with the lead to an enormous outlet of carbon dioxide uh, when we rebuild the city. So I think this is also a way to reduce the outlet of carbon dioxide by making the city more resilient. Yes, it's back to this point of bringing people along with you. And Kit alluded to that uh, just a minute ago in terms of the tools that you have as a city at your disposal in terms of planning regulations and uh, financial regulations. Uh, Do you think that those tools, Jan, are as important as citizens' support to get resilient city? Because unless you have... The, the policy tools available to do what you want to, it's very difficult. You're fighting, you know, trying to push water uphill, as it were, no pun intended. Yeah, that's that's really a challenge because uh, this is not only a challenge that could be solved by the local authority. This also requires a cooperation with the national level to provide the, the necessary legislation, regulation to be able to implement the plans we are working with in, in Copenhagen. And I think that goes for all cities around the world. I heard that from some of our, our the cities we are cooperating with, that they also have this uh, difficulties about the national legislation, make it difficult for them to implement uh, the necessary plans. And did that happen for Copenhagen at a national level, did you persuade national government to change yeah. the rules? Yeah, we, we did. In 2011, we saw that it was not possible for us to implement our adaptation plan because of uh, the legislation that does not allow us to, to do the the handling of the rainwater surface. Uh, so we lobbied for a change in, in the uh, law and regulations so we could be able to implement this plan. And we succeeded in this uh, the national level, they saw that, okay, this is really a challenge and we have to do something about it. And we have a regulation so it's possible to to make this uh, implementation that we do today. There still are some regulations that have to be more smooth so we are able to continue our work. So this is an ongoing challenge for us to have this uh, cooperation with the national level. And do you think that, that it helped that you were the capital city of the country. I'm just thinking. I'm going to ask Kit the same question in Glasgow. But you know, you're obviously you know you're sitting at at the centre in the same place as the centre of government. Is that does that make life easier for you? Yeah, I, I think of course because the the challenge and the the risk of also of economic laws uh, is bigger in a in a capital uh, than it is in a smaller city. But uh, I think now after this summer. Uh, we have a lot of cloudbursts in Denmark, a lot of 
uh, smaller cities have also been hit by this uh, cloudburst and a lot of damage. Uh, I think that really helps also for for the national level to see this is not only a, a challenge for the capitalists, it's a challenge for all. And all that have looked at the news this summer, seen the flooding in Germany, Holland, uh, Turkey, all over the world. This is not only a local challenge, it's a challenge for all. And national and international challenges that have to be solved by cooperation between uh, municipalities, uh, the national level and also international uh, level. Yes, thank you. And um, Kit, it's been so fascinating. We've just looked at the time and we're coming towards the end of our podcast. So thank you very much, both of you, for such fascinating insights. But Kit, I wonder if I could ask you the same question. I mean, you're in a different position, obviously. You're not the capital city of Scotland or of the UK. And so maybe is the challenge a little bit stronger for you? I mean, even though, as we said, the world will be watching Glasgow in a couple of months' time on this very subject. Yeah, I mean, I think it may be a little bit different, but we sort of have a lot of similarities with Copenhagen in the sense Glasgow is, you know, the largest of the 32 local authorities in Scotland. So it has a kind of a, a bigger amount of, I suppose, capacity and capability to engage with the changes that need to be made. But I mean, I think we probably both say that actually the kind of the amount of planning and the amount of work that, um, you know, needs to happen, everyone is going to need to increase the amount of capacity and capability they have in the, in the decades ahead. I think what the challenge really is, is about being very clear about what needs to change, right? So the, you know, it, it almost needs to be, you know, individual lines in regulation with suggested wording in there for um, to be able to entertain the idea. And I think the the challenge of that is also about just making the decisions about where you put your time and effort, right? Because, you know, the kind of, I think, you know, Jan said it quite well in that to deliver on climate action, we need a partnership between all the different levels of governance. And then we need that alignment there between sort of, you know, national UK and, and local government. But at the same time, we've also got to get delivering, right? So, you know, there's always that kind of conversation to be had internally about, you know, where do I put my time? Do I focus on delivering where I can or are the barriers to that too great? And therefore, is it better to spend time working you know, to change those? So that's always the calculation you have to make, I think. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. We always ask one very final question uh, to our guests and particularly relevant in the context of this conversation. So, uh, Kit, I'll ask you first. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about the future? I mean, I'm always an optimist, probably too much of an optimist, maybe. But I, I sort of feel like humans have got massive capability for change. If you look back over history, we've done some amazing things. And I think this is no different from all the evidence that we have that it's completely possible to build a better future. But I do have a degree of pessimism because we're leaving it so late and the amount of change that we have to bring about now over the next decade is so big. So I'm, I'm an optimist, but um, I suppose a realist and, and, and kind of slightly concerned about that too. And with the eyes of the world on Glasgow in a couple of months' time, do you feel like you're in the centre of something momentous? I have to say I think I do. Obviously, as you'd expect, the, the COP process is driving a lot of focus on the city and therefore a lot more action, um, which is great. But actually, I don't really feel as if, you know, we're not seeing COP as a reason to do things. We're using it as a way to accelerate all of our ambitions already, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you. And and Jan, of course, a previous holder of the COP talks. I remember from 
quite literally bitter person experience as I was one of the journalists standing outside in in minus five waiting to get accredited <laughs> along with along with all the people in bumblebee suits and uh, and everybody else um but uh, are you an optimist or a pessimist for the future I'm an optimist uh, and I think humanity have to all time been able to adapt to a changing climate now it's moving quite fast it seems like that at least and but I think we have the tools we have the knowledge uh so uh, i think what is needed is uh, political action and it's about knowledge sharing between cities uh, not at least to move as fast as possible uh, on this important issue to share knowledge about how to do and what works and what does not work because uh, no matter if it's a big or small city those solutions, they are transferable between cities and all the knowledge is also transferable. And do you think that hosting the climate change talks, did it make a difference to Copenhagen? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's uh, communication about this and what I said about knowledge sharing. I think that's that's the trick about uh, adaptation. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your time and thank you for being incredibly fascinating guests for us on the IEMA podcast. Mm -hmm.